We're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, picking up at verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. I'd like to read this for us. Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us about what Jesus Christ accomplished when he died on the cross for us. And that peace that Jesus came to bring with you and with one another, Lord, I pray that that would be our experience in our life and in our world. And we ask this all for your honor and glory. Amen. In the whole history of man, there have been very few conflicts as intense and long-lasting as the conflict between the Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. And it should not have always been that way. I mean, the nation of Israel was called to be a light to the nations. God said, I want you to declare my glory among all peoples. They were being a witness to the nations around them so that others might come to know the Messiah, that they might hear about this one who would come that would be our Savior and Redeemer. But generations of war and oppression really changed all of that. Israel experienced the oppression by nations like Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And all of those created so much hostility that by the time of Christ, there was kind of a hardened attitude both directions. For example, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were infidels created to fuel the fires of hell. A common motto was the best of the serpents crush and the best of the Gentiles kill. In fact, it was not even lawful for a Jew to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. But the Jews were not the only ones guilty of racial prejudice and hatred. The Greeks considered anyone who was not a Greek to be a barbarian. The Roman poet Livy said, the Greeks wage a truceless war against people of other races, against the barbarians. That's the way they looked at the world. It was us and them. And Rome was like that also. Rome despised the Carthaginians who lived in North Africa, just across the Mediterranean, 
And they also despised the Huns and the Vandals in Europe to the north, and they did not trust them, and they were at war with them. Everyone had an enemy, someone who was beneath them and despised. And that was the way the world was, but sadly, that's the way much of world history has been. Why is our world like that? And why is there so much hatred and violence? Why do we see these continuing struggles even today? The Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we see it with terrorist groups like ISIS and Hamas and Al-Qaeda. We see it, the conflicts in Ukraine between Russia and the Ukrainians right now. There are trouble spots like North Korea, Somalia, Sudan, Afghanistan, Pakistan. You could go on and on. Why is it? It is because the basic problem of man is sin. It's our rebellion against God. And that's why only Jesus can bring peace. That's what this passage is about. That's what Paul is writing about here. And when Paul thought about the church at Ephesus and he looked out on that congregation, he saw something that was truly amazing. He saw Jews and Gentiles worshiping to God, worshiping God together in unity and love. He saw these two groups that once had had so much hostility now joined together as one in Christ. And that was an amazing thing. And he wanted them to understand exactly what God had done. We too may take that for granted. The way that Christ is able to break down the walls that divide people. But when we see that happen and when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ from all different languages and people groups and nations, it is a picture of what God intends our world to be. So what does Paul do in this passage? Well, first of all, he calls us to remember our past. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ. He's speaking to these Gentiles at that time who were living outside of this relationship with Jesus Christ. What's interesting to me in this passage is that this is the only place where Paul urges us to remember our past. Normally, he's telling us to forget our past, to let go of those things. For example, in Philippians, he tells us to forget the past and press on toward what is ahead. But his intent in those two passages is different. In Philippians, he doesn't want the past to be something that we are clinging to, that's going to hold us back from following Christ with all our heart. He doesn't want us to hang on to the things of the world that are going to hinder us or trip us up in our relationship with Christ. But here, in this passage, his intention is different. He never wants us to forget where we came from and the wonder of God's grace. He wants us to remember the remarkable thing that God has done in saving us and bringing us into his family. He writes to those who were Gentiles by birth. They were called the uncircumcised by the Jews in that day, and that was really a pejorative, a derogatory term that was thrown at them like a racial slur. And then he describes the condition of the Gentiles in five ways that they were separate from Christ. They had no knowledge of the Messiah and his coming. 
They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, and they were on the outside. They were not part of that covenant relationship. They were foreigners, in fact, strangers to the covenants of promise that had been given to Adam and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down through Israel's history. They were without hope, and they were without God. And that's the way that they were living in this world. And what is it like to live without hope or without God? Well, even their own philosophers and poets expressed it. For example, Theogenes in 500 B.C. wrote, I will try to have a good time while I'm young because I will lie under the earth for a very long time, voiceless as a stone, and I shall leave the sunlight that I loved, and then I shall see no more. Have a good time, my soul, while young. Soon others will take my place, and I shall be black earth in death. No mortal is happy under the sun. Pretty depressing, isn't it? I mean, when you hear those words and you think of how they were feeling when they thought about life, and if you have no hope for the future, nothing beyond the grave, this is it, this is all there is, and you see the suffering, the sorrow, the war, the violence, the oppression. It's a pretty bleak picture. The Roman poet Catullus wrote, that the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. There's no hope. And even today we see that in poets or philosophers or songwriters who will write about our generation and our life. If they have no hope of God, no hope of eternal life, it's pretty bleak. In fact, even today, there are many people who don't even want to think about what happens when we die because it is too painful and depressing to even go there when you don't know God. So why does God want us to remember our past? He wants us to remember where we came from. I have a friend who's a pastor. His name is Dell. And Dell is a man with a passion for evangelism. And I asked him about that one time for him. What is it that really fuels your passion for evangelism? Because he was always building relationships with those who don't know Christ and leading people to the Lord and sharing that. And he said, you know, my wife and I came to know Christ later in life. We were in business. You know, my goal was to make a lot of money, to uh, be secure financially, to have fun and enjoy uh, the toys in this life, you know, the parties, alcohol, all those things that he viewed as part of having a good time and a good life. But things didn't quite work out like he thought they would. And there were struggles in business, and there were losses, and there were struggles with alcohol, and there were family dynamics that were not good. And most of all, there was an emptiness in my heart. And it wasn't until he came to know Jesus as his Savior and Lord that all of that changed and the joy of the Lord filled his heart. And life changed dramatically for them. And he said to me, Rick, he said, I've lived on the other side and I've never forgotten what that is like. That's what Paul is talking about here that we would remember what it is like to live without Christ and that we would share that hope that we have with others. Paul goes on to say he wants us to remember who it is that saved us, that redeemed us. 
In verse 13, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Those words, but now, are emphatic. There's a change that took place. These Gentiles who once were all of these things excluded from the kingdom of heaven, excluded in their relationship with God, now have come near because of what Christ has done. And they've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And those words again, he himself, it is Christ who has saved us. And the emphasis is placed on Jesus and what he has done for us. How did he bring peace? By making the two one. By destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now those words are interesting. And I want to go back and I want to explain what is meant there because Paul is using language that is strong and emotive. He is talking about things that they would understand in their world, but we might not unless it's made clear to us what he's getting at. The words that he uses to describe the barrier, the balustrade, or the dividing wall of of hostility, they come right out of the terms that were used in the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem had a series of kind of concentric courtyards around it. And there were restrictions where you could go this far and no farther. In the court of the Gentiles, there was an area where God-fearing Gentiles could come onto the Temple Mount, but there was a wall, there was a balustrade, the very thing that Paul is talking about here that would separate them from going any farther. It was a dividing wall. Paul once himself was accused of trying to sneak a Gentile past that wall in Jerusalem. That's why he was arrested in those final days when he was brought before uh, the authorities in Jerusalem and then Caesarea, and he made his appeal to be brought before Caesar. It was because he was accused of bringing a Gentile onto the Temple Mount, and you could not do that. And so we think about this temple, and here was this area where the Gentiles could go, and the intent was that they could go there to worship God. But what did Jesus say happened to that area, the court of the Gentiles? He said, you have made it a den of robbers. It was the area that had been taken over by the merchants and the moneylenders and the people who were changing the currency out that you may be brought for an offering. Your currency to be an offering had to be in the temple currency. And so you had to exchange things and there were exorbitant prices. It was there you could buy or sell animals and doves for the sacrifices. But it was so chaotic that when Jesus came to his house, he was angry, and he overthrew those money changers. He wanted to drive them out, because my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. And there at this balustrade, this dividing wall of hostility, there were death notices. Two of those have been preserved in history. One is at the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul. The other is at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. And these death inscriptions said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. 
And anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was serious. You could not go any farther than this or you would be killed. When you walked up the steps that went from that area onto the raised platform where the temple stood, there was a court that was for all the Israelites. And then that too was separated into a court for women and a court for men where you could go this far but no farther. And then closer to the temple itself was the court of the priests where they could go. And only those that had been selected at that time to lead or help in the services that were going on there. But the greatest barrier of all in the temple was the veil that hung between the holy place and the most holy place. The holy of holies, where God would dwell among his people, there above the Ark of the Covenant. And in that holy place, the high priest could enter only once a year. And only after he had offered a sacrifice for himself and his family, and then for God's people. This great veil, and I I think when we think of a veil, we usually think of something more slender or thin. But this great veil or curtain was about six inches thick. And it was there to seal off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It was designed to teach us about sin and about alienation. In fact, all of these barriers were designed to teach us about sin and alienation and separation from one another because sin is at the root of our separation from God. Sin is at the root of our separation and hostility and alienation from one another because the basic problem that separates us from God is sin. And it is this veil that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Matthew records that in his gospel that this this great veil was rent by God himself. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I think of it, those angels that were assigned this task that were waiting. Okay, is it now? Is it now? And waiting when Christ died. They tore that veil from top to bottom as a symbol that now, because of what Christ has done for us, we can enter into God's very presence by the blood of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. All of these barriers Jesus removed. He removed the barrier that separated us from God We don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to worship. We don't have to go to the temple to worship. He abolished all of the rules and regulations that were part of the old covenant. We don't have to bring our sacrifices to God as they did. We don't have to celebrate the feast. We don't have to follow all of the ceremonial regulations. The moral law is still a standard for us. God is... Still holy, things like the Ten Commandments are still applicable to us as believers in Jesus Christ. But all of the rules and the regulations that had to do with the rituals and the ceremonies are fulfilled and done. 
And now we can come before Christ and we can worship him anywhere. He destroyed that barrier of hostility between Jew and Gentile by creating one new man out of the two. And instead of in this world there now being Jews and Gentiles, he created a third category, a third race, if you will, who are called Christians or Christ followers and who know Jesus and who come together under that new unity as followers of God's Son, our Savior. And as followers of Christ, we are to live by a different set of values in this world. And the new community he created is called the church. It's this fellowship of believers that has both its local representation like ours, like we are a church in this community, but there is also a universal church that is made up of believers around the world. And whenever we meet with them or we fellowship with them, there is this unity that comes because of our worship of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And what Paul's going to tell us in the rest of this letter is how we are to live as God's people. That's what chapters 4 through 6 are about. What it means to live as children of God. What it means to walk in the light. What it means to have fellowship with one another in the body of Jesus Christ. All of that is ours because of what God has done. And finally, one more point, one more thing that Paul wants us to remember is he wants us to remember to share the good news of the gospel. In verses 17 and 18, he said that he came and preached peace to you who are far away. Christ came and he preached peace to you. Peace to those who are far away, referring to the Gentiles. Peace to those who were near, referring to the Jews who were the first to hear this good news of the gospel and of the Messiah. But how does God do that? How did Christ preached to the Ephesians, for example. Well, to the Ephesians, it was through Paul's witness that Christ preached. It was through Paul and the witness of the apostles and the other missionaries that were sent out. How did Christ preach the gospel to you? It was through the individuals who shared with you the story of Jesus of his birth, of his love for you, of his death on the cross for your sins, of the hope that we can have when we turn and we place our faith in him. Christ was preaching to you through those individuals. I think in my own life of sitting in a Quonset at a Bible camp and hearing a speaker who shared the gospel that night. I don't remember his name. I don't know who that was that spoke that night. But I know that Christ was speaking to me, and I went forward when that invitation was given to receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And every time we share the gospel with someone else, he speaks through you. Every time you tell somebody about Jesus, he is speaking through you. And it's why Jesus said to the disciples, he said, you know, if men reject you, it's because they're rejecting me. That what they're hearing, they're hearing me. They're hearing my words. And if they receive you, it's because they receive me. If they reject you, it's because they reject me. But don't let that stop you from sharing the good news because how are people going to hear 
unless someone tells them. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, if you put that up, he said, we are ambassadors for Christ. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors. We represent him in the world. We share his message, not our own. And we tell others how they can come to know this one who is the great king, the savior of the world. He goes on in verse 18 to say that it is through him that we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one spirit. Do you notice the Trinity there? How all three are referred to. Jesus and his work on the cross, the Father that we are coming to, and the access we have by the Holy Spirit. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone that we can come to the Father. And we do that because he has sent his Spirit who lives in us and who guides us and directs us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three at work in our salvation, all three at work in our sanctification and in our witness to the world around us. Only Jesus can bring peace to our world. Now, a few years ago, Ravi Zacharias was part of a group that went to the Middle East to try to bring together some of those leaders in that part of the world and to talk about a plan for peace. Ravi Zacharias, many of you know, he's a Christian apologist, he's an author. Uh, he's just um, very challenging in the way that he speaks and the things that he shares, very thoughtful in that, and this was no exception. And he said, I was there and I was talking to one of the founders of Hamas, Sheikh Talal, and I was part of a group that had gone there to try and bring these people together at a peace table. And Sheikh Talal gave us a great meal. He told us of 18 years that he'd served in prison and how some of his children had been lost in suicide bombings. And when my turn came to ask the question, I said, Sheikh, forgive me if I'm asking you the wrong question, but please tell me, what do you think of suicide bombing and sending your children out like that? And after he finished his answer, I said, Sheik, you and I may never see each other again, so I want you to hear me. A little distance from here is a mountain upon which Abraham went 5,000 years ago to offer his son. And as the knife was about to fall, God said, stop. And do you know what God said after that? He shook his head. And I said, God said, I myself will provide. And he nodded his head. And I said, very close to where you and I are sitting, Sheik, is a hill. And 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise. And he brought his own son. And that day, death did not stop this time. But he sacrificed his own son. And he just stared at me. And the room was full of smoke and all the security people were there and it was quiet. And I said, I may never see you again, Sheik, but I want to leave you with this. Until you and I receive the Son 
that God has provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. You catch that? Unless we receive the son that God has provided, we're going to be sending out our own sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. And I could see that the man's lips were beginning to quiver. He was sitting next to me. And nobody said anything after that. And as we were walking out, Sheikh Talal quickly went and he shook hands with everyone. And then he came to me and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he kissed me on both cheeks and he said, you are a good man and I hope that I will see you again someday. I don't know how he responded. It's not told in the story. But Ravi Zacharias said this, when you understand God's grace, it is an unparalleled message. In Hinduism, you pay with karma. In Islam, you never know where you stand. You don't know if your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. But in Christianity, the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And the grace of Christ comes to you and me, and it says, if any man comes to me, I will not cast him out. You can come to me for salvation. You can come and you can find peace with God. And it's only Jesus who ultimately can bring peace to our world. Do you know that peace? And have you placed your trust in him as your Savior and Lord? Paul writes and he wants us to remember our past and to know how God has changed us. He wants us to remember who it is that saved us, that it is Jesus and Jesus alone. And he wants us to remember to share that good news with others so that they too might come to know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have kept your promise and you have sent your son. That he came to fulfill all the requirements of the law. He lived an absolutely sinless life. And he took upon himself our sins and died in our place. Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. And we look forward to that day when you will return and you will establish your kingdom on earth and you will bring peace to our world. If you're here today and you've never received that wonderful gift of salvation and you never placed your hope in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, would you do so today? Would you turn to him and would you just say, Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Would you come into my heart? Would you make me a new person in Jesus Christ? And would you fill me with your joy, your hope, and your peace? If you will come to him, he will not cast you out. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.